it appears that the consumer is alive and well and shopping. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny, And I'm David Kestenbaum. Yes, the consumer is alive. That was Michael Numaira, chief economist at the International Council of Shopping Centers. You heard at the top talking about retail sales. We got some new numbers about retail sales this week. Apparently, sales at stores open at least a year rose 3.7% in February. I'd like to say thanks in a small part to me. I just went to Party <laughs> City the other day and bought a bunch of decorations for my sister's bridal shower. Thank you, Caitlin. So people are still shopping despite all that crazy snow we had here. Those are the highest levels since November 2007. But hey... November 2007 wasn't so great. Anyway, today we take a look at what may or may not be a crazy idea. The idea is that a bunch of separate countries that are constantly bickering, that have their own separate languages, their own separate governments, their own separate sports teams competing at the Olympics, that those countries can all share a single currency, that they can live happily under a single currency. Which brings us to today's indicator. It is 6.3%. That is the relatively high interest rate on bonds issued by the Greek government yesterday. And basically, this means the Greek government really needs people to loan it money. And in order to get them to loan it, they had to say, hey, we'll pay you back your money and we'll give you the 6.3% interest rate. So, Caitlin, you looked up some other interest rates. And it turns out if you loan money to Comcast, the company, buy one of its bonds, you're getting less interest. You're getting 5.15% on a 10-year bond, meaning basically investors have more faith in a cable company than they do in the country of Greece. And the, the Greek problem, that is why we're talking about the euro today on the podcast. Greece is on the euro. I know that sounds like a drug. It's sort of true. Being on the euro, that is why the rest of the market had confidence in Greece, confidence that Greece would keep its financial house in order, that the rest of the European Union would stand behind Greece. But Greece has been having so much trouble. It is in so much debt that people are worrying the country might actually default. And so people are reluctant to lend Greece money. Greece is having to pay those high interest rates, which is making things even harder for Greece. And that's got people questioning, maybe this euro thing wasn't such a good idea after all. The other week on our podcast, we talked to Ken Rogoff. He's an economist at Harvard about the problems in Greece. And he said, you know, sure, Greece had its own problems. They got into a lot of debt. But at this point, the euro is not making anything easier for them. In fact, it's making things harder. He says that being tied to the same currency as the rest of the European Union has left Greece without basically what's a really important fire extinguisher, something that they could use to get themselves out of this. If a country's running into trouble, a country's debts have gotten too high, if markets lose faith, having your own currency and exchange rate that can go down in value, make your goods more competitive, it's very helpful. So for instance, if Greece were on its own right now, no one would be wanting to buy the Greek currency, right? Because Greece is in trouble. So its value relative to other currencies would go down, which would mean that Greek exports would be cheaper, right? Which would be which would help them get out. That's the way it was supposed to sort of help self-correct, right? Is well, that that's right? very well put, David. That the currency having an exchange rate is a self-correcting mechanism. So by having the euro, Greece doesn't have this natural safety valve, and it, it really is an existential crisis for the euro. 
existential crisis. I love that. That would make me think of uh, Kierkegaard if I'd done my reading in that class. You're such a slacker. Slacker. But anyway, Ken Rogoff is not the only one saying these type of things. We were just looking through the few papers in the last few weeks, and the headlines are just full of this idea. Uh, One headline, the Greek debt crisis exposes the Eurozone's fundamental flaws. Soros betting on Euro collapse. Greece's financial crisis puts the future of the Euro in question. Blame the Euro for Greece's debt troubles. And Greek debt crisis tests EU solidarity. So today we're going to look at whether the euro really was such a good idea. After all, we talked to Barry Eichengreen. He's an economist at the University of California, Berkeley. And I asked him, what at the beginning of this, what was the economic argument for why you would all want to be on a single currency? Life is very complicated with uh, a bunch of different currencies. So when you and I and your listeners were traveling around Europe, Every time we crossed a border, we had to go to a bank and uh, um, try to change the, the money from the last country into the, the money for the next country. And we paid 1% or 2 2 or 3% of, of the money we changed each and every time we went from one European country to another. So what was uh, difficult for the American tourist was even more difficult for Europeans moving around the continent and for European business which had to uh, change money, engage in in, uh, transactions in all these different currencies. And what makes it even more complicated is that the value of the currencies could change. Exchange rates can move. There can be unintended financial consequences. If if, if a a French company owed uh, a a German bank uh, a uh, uh, a lot of money in Deutschmarks, and all of a sudden, the, the, the Deutschmark strengthened against the French franc. The French company would uh, be up the creek. It, it would end up in serious financial trouble. So um, I, there were good arguments, I think, for going ahead with this. So I have to say, I hear this is the problem that tourists used to have when they went to Europe because the first time I went to Europe, they were actually already on the euro. Because <laughs> you were 12 at the time <laughs> when they went to the euro. Okay, okay. I'm a little younger than you. But yes, um, people used to have all these weird change and random bills. And a lot of people, when we were working on this podcast today, were talking about, oh, yeah, I have a drawer full of coins at home that I can never use. You don't? No. Your parents, your grandparents didn't leave you that? <laughs> all right. Well, there, and there was a reason for all those different currencies because it meant that all these countries, they had their own central banks. And that means you have control over your money supply. So if – I mean these are really different countries to be trying to put together under a single currency. You've got big, powerful Germany. You've got Luxembourg, um, which the main business is financial stuff. You've got under, other countries that do a lot of farming. I mean Greece is so much poorer than Luxembourg. I looked up the GDP per capita. We were talking about that on the podcast the other day. Greece's GDP per capita is half of Luxembourg's. And these are – there are 16 different countries here under one currency. And there's good reasons that you would want different currencies. Like if some country's economy is growing slowly, its central bank can say, hey, no problem. We'll put more money in the economy. We'll try to lower interest rates. And we'll just encourage borrowing to get things going again. So they have options. Right. But with the euro, you can't do that. You're stuck. It's this kind of one-size-fits-all monetary policy. So now, actually, we've been arguing this. I'm convinced, Caitlin, it sounds ridiculous. Where did they get this brilliant idea? I mean, come on. Give me one example where you got a bunch of different governments with different economies all sharing one currency. Dude, are you serious? Yeah. Do you realize where you're living right now? 
That's right. The United States of America. United States. See, it's in the title there. United States. We've got not 16, 50 different governments here. And the states all look really different. You've got New York, a big financial center. You've got Alabama farming. And we are all living very happily with the dollar. So it makes sense that the Europeans looked at us and they're like, hey, it's working for them. Why don't we give it a shot? Eichen Green says that the conversations that were taking place when they first started talking about the euro back in the late 90s, they sounded actually a lot like what was happening in America in the late 1800s when we were talking about moving to a single currency. And, you know, it wasn't easy for us initially, too. We went through the same growing pains, but eventually we worked things out. The problem was that the the dollar uh, issued by uh, Bob's bank didn't trade one for one uh, with the dollar uh, issued by Bill's bank. So uh, uh, there were these uh, circulars called uh, note reporters. You bought the uh, the circular, and it ha- had a list of, of what the, um, the current price in Philadelphia was for all these different banknotes. That was pretty complicated as a way of doing business. And uh, in a sense, it, it's the problem that Europeans had in the 1980s and 1990s. They had to, you know, pick up the newspaper every day uh, to, to figure out how many German marks to pay uh, if they were coming from France and they had to do a, a transaction in, in, in Germany. I see. So we, we really are the model for the euro. And, and the Europeans talked about that, I think, a lot. They looked at the United States and say, said, we have a, a competitive advantage over them. Um, why were American companies doing better than uh, European companies in the 1950s, they asked. Well, there were various reasons, but one they said is um, these American companies have the advantage that they can do all their business in in dollars, not only their business within the U.S., but globally that the dollar was kind of the monetary lingua franca, the the money that everybody in third countries around the world used. So that was the other motivation for creating the euro, to create a true international currency that people in Latin America or Asia would accept. You know, if you do do business in in Asia, uh, typically you do it in dollars. But increasingly now you do it in euros. I'm kind of being persuaded. I mean, it's, it's obvious. One currency, except that it's not working so well, which kind of raises the question, if a single currency works so well for us, why are they having so many problems? So we talked to a few people about this, and they all made the same points. And all the points help explain this, this, this one thing, which is why in the United States, basically, you don't get an individual state getting as messed up as Greece is. So um, – here, let's give an example. Pick a pick a state here in the U.S. I'm going to be I'm going to be Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and I will be a rich and powerful neighbor, Connecticut, where I grew up. All right. So my people here in Pennsylvania, we are really hurting. We have uh, the economy is hurting, and we have a very high unemployment rate. That must be tough. Things in Connecticut are pretty sweet. Hello, Greenwich. See, it's not so much of a problem in the United States because what happens is the people of Pennsylvania. We just pack up our U-Hauls, throw the kids in and the dog. We drive over to Connecticut where we get jobs doing um, – I will build you some more buildings for your hedge funds or something like that. But Eichen Green says in Europe, things are harder. And one reason is this issue of labor mobility. If you live in Greece, it's hard to just pack up your – do they have U-Hauls? Maybe it's an yeah. U-Haul with an umlaut or something. It's hard to pack up your stuff and move to Germany because for one thing, you don't speak German. 
different cultures, different languages, uh, different levels of acceptance in the higher income country. So, you know, Americans take for granted that we're all Americans and, and we move around. If you look at the numbers at about twice the rate we move between states, that Europeans move uh, across uh, their internal borders. Okay, you said there's a second thing that's different. And the second thing is uh, we have a federal system of taxes and transfers. So I hear that a lot, and that doesn't, I don't understand why that's important for keeping us all together. Well, so when a particular state ha- has uh, a problem uh, in the U.S., if California has an unusually high unemployment rate, there are going to be lots of Californians with lower incomes at the moment who are going to be paying less in on April 15th to the federal government in Washington, D.C., and the federal government will be turning around and, and giving the depressed states uh, more money to help them finance their unemployment benefit payments. Uh, so the way the federal tax and, and, and expenditure system works in the United States, it's always transferring a little bit of money from the states that are doing relatively well to the states that are not doing so well. So, so the reason why it's why it's important for our s- s- financial and economic stability in this country to have a central government uh, taxing everybody, which they don't have that in in the EU, is that it allows it, it keeps any one state, for instance, from getting too far off on its own, to getting getting in too bad of a shape, right? Because we sort of share the pain and we share the wealth a bit. If a state is doing poorly, like Michigan or something, they're going to pay less in federal taxes, but in but uh, but the federal government will be helping that state out even more, actually, with more probably more Medicaid payments, probably unemployment um, benefits. So that that state actually gets helped. Whereas Greece, no one's helping Greece, right? Greece, Greece is in trouble. It's just in trouble. That's right. So in, in the U.S., it's like an insurance program. There's nothing really like that uh, operating in Europe. We also have another thing they don't have in Europe. Here in the U.S., we limit how much debt each state government can have. And that makes it hard for a state to get in as much trouble as Greece to borrow so much money that they have so much debt that it's hard for them to repay. Iken Green points out that California's debt is something like 10 percent of the state's economy. Greece's debt is 12 times that, 120 percent of the Greek economy, which we know happened because they sort of went on this crazy spending spree. Right. And there's supposed to be limits, but they don't seem to be uh, observed. So this is another difference. If you don't have a central government really keeping all the currency members in line, things can get out of hand. And, you know, we all here, we consider ourselves we're part of the United States. Not me. I'm a Connecticuter, Connecticutian. See, you can't even say it. It doesn't exist. We're Americans. In Europe, they really think of themselves correctly as independent countries. And people get really fired up about this. We actually managed to find an actual European. Yes. You know, we're reporters. (laughs) We can find them. A local to talk about this, but Oh, crap. He he told us that he's not European. He's British. Excuse me. They're kind of sensitive about that. Tim Congdon is the chief executive of a company called International Monetary Research Limited. And for him, the idea that you have this like central authority, the European Union, telling a sovereign country like Greece how it should manage its finances, it just he hates that idea. It makes him crazy. The European Union is sending in bureaucrats to take power effectively to tell the local bureaucrats, tell the Greek citizens what they must do. That is what's going on. Um, and, you know, and that means that effectively Greece is no longer an independent nation. Now, you might say, well, fine, you know, Texas and Oklahoma are not independent nations, so what the hell? 
as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to be governed by people in Brussels and Frankfurt. And I, I'm British. I'm not a European in the sense that people in Texas and Oklahoma are Americans. And that is what this is all about, ultimately. I feel like I'm going back and forth so much in this podcast. Now I'm feeling like, what the hell are these people doing sharing our currency? <laughs> I mean, it's not really working. Maybe they should just stop and go back to the way things were. That way, next time I go to Europe, I can have a cool little drawer and I can put the Austrian shilling in it, the Slovenian tolar, the Slovak karuna. (laughs) We had to look these up. The Maltese lira, the Dutch gilder, the Luxembourgian franc, and of course, the Greek drachma. And Barry Eichengreen says... Sorry, Caitlin, that is not happening. And it's not, for, it's not for complicated political reasons or really economic reasons. It is just physically impractical. It took them two years to get to the point where they could actually introduce euro bills and coins. They were reprogramming the computers of the banks and the ATMs and, and the machines in the subterranean parking garages and, and positioning coins and notes uh, all around Europe. It was logistically and, and technically a very complicated thing to do. It, and so Greece couldn't do the opposite in a weekend. It would have to prepare. And in a democracy, which Greece and all the Euro- other European countries are, there'd have to be a parliamentary debate. So ask yourself, your parliament is debating whether to reintroduce uh, the Greek drachma precisely in order to print a whole lot more of it and push the the drachma down against the euro so Greece becomes more competitive. What would you, you do with your money under those circumstances? Answer, you'd um, wire it all of it to a German bank where <laughs> it would be more likely to hold its value. So uh, and, and I, I, I think... And I certainly wouldn't buy a, a Greek bond, right? Because I, because I know they're going to just switch currencies and I wouldn't know what it would be worth in the end. I, I, re- I think of this as the, the mother of all financial crises, that uh, everybody who owned a Greek bond would sell it and buy a German bond. Uh, on the first day, they uh, got wind of the uh, possibility that the Greek parliament was going to talk about this possibility. So knowing that they can't talk about it, they have to figure out a way to, to make life with the euro work, and the European partners are going to have to help them. So, so they're, they're stuck with the euro, huh? They're stuck with the euro, I was going to say almost certainly, but let me say certainly. I don't, I don't see how it's uh, feasible to wriggle out. They're going to uh, have to tighten their belts now because they've been having one big fat Greek party for the last 10 years, and that can't go on. Hey, David, I got a little known fact for you. Yeah. You know that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Mm-hmm. Actually, a commentary on the Greek financial system. <laughs> I missed that. I missed that, yeah. Barry Eichengreen actually calls himself a skeptical proponent of the euro idea. He thought the idea of having a single currency made a lot of sense. You know, he said that in this podcast already. But he thinks it was a mistake letting Greece in. You know, he said, we knew they were having financial troubles, that they weren't reporting their numbers accurately, and that they were kind of unreliable. So the European Union just shouldn't have let them into the euro. He says he thinks the euro is going to survive. But um, at this point, we do not know how the story is going to end. I mean, here it could be like, will Greece slowly dig itself out from under its debt? When you tune in to, to hear that, yeah. it's, it's like a 10-year movie. Uh, will the European Union rescue Greece? That's a sort of shorter movie. Will the International Monetary Fund come to the rescue? 
That's a mini movie. That's a TV drama. <laughs> but David, I, I actually have another proposal I'd like to run by you. Okay. How about a single global currency? Imagine one beautiful, gleaming central bank, the Federal Reserve of Planet Earth. Run by Caitlin Kenny. Yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. I think that does it for us today. Let us know if we had a global currency, what would you name it? You can send us email at planetmoney at npr.org. Or our editor, Amy Stevens, wants to know, can anyone out there name, without cheating, the 16 countries in the euro? And you get bonus points if you can name the eight others that have pledged to join. And as always, check out our blog, npr.org slash money. Our brand new blogger, Jacob, has a great post up about the euro's existential crisis. I'm Caitlin Kenny. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you to our editor, Amy Stevens, and to you, Caitlin Kenny, our awesome producer and fill-in host, without whom Planet Money would be having its own existential crisis. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. These silver apples will shine.